Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. The rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Anas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned here today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, thank you for that reading, Reverend Stone. It is good to be with all of you here in the sanctuary and for those of you at home. Uh, let me say right from the beginning, I try not to make too many apologies for the sermon beforehand. That's what the back door is for, but I have been hit with a wall of allergies, and so bear with me as I soldier on uh, trying to make these words uh, clear for you all. I hope that there is something faithful and helpful in them. Will you please join with me in prayer? God who loves and holds us all, May this prayer be true and simple. Give us the ears to hear your faithful words and give us the courage to speak truth and faithful words to others. May these words and the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you. It's in Christ that we pray, always in thanksgiving. Amen. Whether we realize it or not, our lives are always shaped by it. Even when we don't speak of it or, or think of it, it's still there, always working under the surface and playing out in the background. We cloak it with other terms like influence and authority but when we boil it all down, and if we're to name it for what it really is, we're talking about power. When we think about power, we often think about, about where it all goes terribly wrong. You've no doubt heard the famous remark, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We're all too familiar with those who misuse their authority in every sector of public and private life. 
I would venture to say that you could open the newspaper on any day of the week and find an example of those who misused and abused their power. Maybe we find it so newsworthy because we are acquainted with those who misuse their authority. And not only this, but also because maybe we take a strange satisfaction in making a spectacle of those who are finally outdone by their misdeeds. Perhaps we revel more than we should whenever the powerful fall because we know deep down that Far too often, those who manipulate and misuse their power often get away with it without facing the consequences. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, writing with his characteristic derision, once observed that, quote, "...everybody strives to become master over all space and to extend its force." that is, its will to power, and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on the part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement, a a union with those of them that are sufficiently related to it. They can conspire together for power, and so the process goes." End quote. For Nietzsche, though our potential path for greater power is sometimes blocked, we find ways of brokering more power, of colluding in the ongoing advancement of our selfish will and wants. Nietzsche's view of power has sometimes been likened to the idea of the classic Western showdown with the spoken or unspoken lines that say, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. It's you or it's me. You see, eventually the smoke will clear and only one will still be standing. A tumbleweed rolls down the street as if to say that's just how life rolls along at least until the next power player rides in the town and the challenge is thrown down all over again. Maybe you know what it's like to be in a showdown that you, that in, where it's clear that someone will definitively win and someone else will undoubtedly lose. Maybe you've experienced what you thought was a simply a friendly competition between a friend or a co-worker somehow slide into a place of manipulation or cruelty. Maybe you know what it's like to have someone try to extend their control and influence at your expense. Or maybe, just maybe, you've even done something to push someone out of the way for the sake of having more power of your own. Maybe you felt bad about it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're over it. Maybe what you've done still keeps you awake at night. Maybe you told yourself a pacifying line, something like, well, that's just how the real world works. Or every now and again, that's just what it takes to to be where I am and to have what I have. It, It goes with the territory. 
Yes, I think it's safe to say that most of us know the tragedy of corrupted and self-centered power. It influences us all. We've seen or felt its sting in one way or another. We know the tension between the powerful and those who are often left powerless. All too often, the gaps between those who have power and those who don't end up being too great to be bridged, as Nietzsche put it, and so the process goes. But what if I told you that power doesn't have to go like this? What if I told you there's another way to think about power? What if I told you that power could be reimagined? What if there was an alternative to this endless, competitive, rough and tumble cycle? And more pointedly, what if I told you that this alternative is at the very heart of the gospel and the Easter story? In his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch challenges Nietzsche's assessment of power by saying, quote, All true being strives to create room for more being and to expend its power in the creation of flourishing environments for variety and life and to thrust back the chaos that limits true being. In doing so, it creates other bodies and invites them into mutual creation and tending of the world, building relationships where there had been none. Thus, they can then cooperate together in creating more power for more creation. See, for Crouch, power isn't something that can only be wielded for selfish gain and as a part of a competitive process. In the words of Duke New Testament scholar Kevin Rowe, simply saying that the wrong use of power by those in charge is wrong does almost nothing to help. If Crouch and Rowe are right, and I think they are, this means we must do more than simply name and lament power's abuse. We need to focus and propel its proper use. We need to embrace how power, leadership, and influence can be used in such a way that makes the peace, well-being, and flourishing of others a constant and guiding priority. You see, it's one thing to give the powerful a bad rap for what they get wrong. It's another thing to redeem the gift of power for its constructive and positive potential. In my estimation, and I hope in yours too, power can be reimagined for good. I'm convinced that today's passage from the book of Acts, chapter 4, gives us an example of this vital work. Let's set the scene. Peter and John are in the process of extending Jesus' ministry after the resurrection. They are doing good for those who are sick. They are acting as healing agents in a world where people still know pain and where disease still riddles our bodies. In a book that depicts the starting line of the church, what we find is that those following Jesus are following his example of self-giving love and care. 
You've often heard me say that Jesus brought healing to every wounded place. In today's account, we witness Peter and John's use of power that disrupts the status quo. It ruffles the feathers of the power brokers of the day. We read that Peter and John heal a man who is sick and was begging for his life. Note that they see someone who's been hurting for a long time, and then they do what is in their power to help. Peter and John act in such a way that those whose power is rooted in coercion and control see, hear, and feel the reverberations of their helping actions. Peter and John create a commotion by their caring. The word quickly gets out that the man who has always been sick is no longer sick. Not unlike the ministry of Jesus, a crowd gathers, grows, and stirs. The people are clamoring to see the result of a power that didn't step on or over or around the poor. Uh, The power of Peter and John that they used, it wasn't premised on keeping the man down. It was about lifting him up, about bringing flourishing to the languishing. Peter and John demonstrate that someone who's been wasting away for a long time wasn't a waste of their time. Peter and John's attention to what others had neglected felt like an indictment on those who had bypassed this man time and time again. Others had chosen not to help, or or maybe their help was too petty in the past. Alms, a, a few coins sparingly given, were merely keeping a problem alive for another day. I can't help but think of Dr. King's famous line, Justice too long delayed is justice denied. Uh, Peter and John see a place of human poverty and sickness, and they use their power to reimagine and then change that place. Earlier in Acts chapter 4, we read that these actions annoyed local leaders. And so Peter and John are arrested and put on trial Those in charge will make a ruling about whether the actions that caused a ruckus constituted a punishable offense. We read in the text that the Spirit of God was upon Peter and John. That is to say that the power they were exercising wasn't simply an inner resolve, but it was a result of the purposes and priorities of God entering into their hearts and actions. Peter and John are asked in verse 7, by what power or name did you do this? They respond by saying that the power they acted in was rooted in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Resurrection is here a firm rebuke of the kind of violence and power that Jesus encountered. Jesus' name is invoked and put on the record as an alternative gloss on power. The power of God came in the face of the one who was rejected. Jesus showed that power wasn't about manipulating, controlling, or coercing, or resorting to violence in order to get what you want. 
Instead, the power of God was remembered in the life and way of Christ. Jesus' disciples reenacted and were in tune with a redeeming power actively transforming broken people and places through their creative energy. They were participating in a good world that is always rife with the possibility of human flourishing. From the beginning, that's what the Spirit of God does. Recall the creation story in Genesis. The Spirit of God, the very breath of God, hovers over and transforms the chaos into a good creation that is replete with good material for the sake of good potential. As Crouch puts it, true power always moves beyond make it so and then moves to a place that says, let us make and let there be. At the heart of the biblical narrative, we discover the transformative power of a divine creative love that redeems and restores. Jesus teaches us, even now, if we have the ears to hear, how to search for the possibility of redemptive love, whether it's in the face of a friend or an enemy. Peter and John conclude their testimony by naming that the power they're using was the same power of Jesus who had been rejected. The life and way of Christ was the stone that had been rejected and thrown out because it wasn't deemed to work with the ruling construct. And yet, that stone that was discarded becomes the centerpiece of it all. The way and power of Jesus is what holds everything together. New Testament scholar Beverly Gaventa writes about this passage in saying, This is not a modernistic cornerstone, the function of which is ceremonial. This is the stone that bears the weight for the entire construction. End quote. There is here a wonderful lesson about how the way of God holds up those who have been denied, disrespected, discouraged, dehumanized, or devalued as a result of the abusive or corruptive powers of others. Perhaps a hard truth to accept comes in seeing the face of Christ in the person that you've rejected or trampled somewhere along the way. Preacher and theologian Sam Wells points out that the task of the church isn't premised on condescendingly making welcome alienated strangers. Instead, it's about seeking out the rejected precisely because they are the energy and life force that will transform us all. What we find in today's passage is a reminder that the overlooked and overpowered are welcome and valued in the kingdom of God. They always belong, period. Many of you have heard me talk at length about intersections of theology and dementia. The heart of my research and writing in this area explores the great tragedy that often occurs when individuals facing dementia are ignored or forgotten in light of a diagnosis. The implications of the way of Christ are many and practical. 
our gaze should always fall on those who are at risk of being overlooked. We must continually ask how we're doing everything in our power to name and participate in the hospitality of God. The church is the place that can uphold the sacred worth, value, and dignity of every person. If you've ever been negated or neglected simply because someone else held the reins of power, I believe your pain grieves God. The way of Jesus begs for reimagined power to uphold the cause of the broken. The church should always be the place that says to everybody that you belong as a part of the beautiful and multi-threaded tapestry of God's beloved community. The church should always name and reenact the power of Christ that is rooted in love, growing in action, and built on the flourishing of every part of God's good creation. As Peter makes clear, that which was scorned became the pivotal piece. At least when it comes to how I understand it, the way of Jesus is not something that simply happened. It's also what's to keep happening in the lives of those who follow Christ. Every day, and even today, we're called to imitate a life found in the name of Jesus. We testify to the real power located in self-giving love for the sake of others. Today's passage holds out a vision of a different kind of power. On the one hand, there will always be power structures that rightly get a bad rap. In the words of one commentator, there will always be threats because they are the central currency of this world. But on the other hand, let us be a community that can acknowledge the reality of a power that is rooted in the way of Christ. Let us speak of a currency of power that comes from beyond the world we're accustomed to falling in line with. Let us speak of the power that broke into the universe in and through Christ. Although this way is often rejected or even crucified, the Easter truth is that this way will not ultimately be defeated because it is the power of God to make and remake creation into a place that seeks the comprehensive flourishing of all creation. My final plea is simply that we would be honest with ourselves. What power what influence, what leadership, what sway do we have? At home, at work, in boardrooms, in living rooms, what power do you have? We must do the hard work of being honest with ourselves and our neighbors. We must ask whether our power is rooted in self-satisfaction or in the life-giving way of God. Yes, power can corrupt, but power reimagined by the resurrection of Christ can make us whole. The question of today's text is still begging to be answered. By what power or by what name are you living?